Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I am excited to announce that Misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th, 2019 in Chicago. Chicago is one of my absolute favorite cities, and I'm so excited to go. So come hang out with me and a bunch of other really great podcasts. You're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find information about the event and tickets. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey and let me know if you plan on being there. I would love to meet any misconduct listeners who attend. And with that, let's get into the episode. This episode once again takes us out of California. How did a festering misunderstanding between two young women end with one brutally torturing and murdering the other? Sometimes the most brutal crimes don't have clear motives. As the third largest in Tennessee, the city of Knoxville is nestled in the Great Appalachia Valley. The Tennessee River runs straight through the city, cutting it in two, while the Great Smoky Mountains loom to the east. Knoxville is home to the University of Tennessee's original campus, which sprawls along the northern bank of the Tennessee River. The research university, founded in 1794, is the mainstay of the city. On the morning of January 13, 1995, a University of Tennessee employee was doing their regular walking sweep of the Knoxville campus. The morning air was crisp and cold as the University of Tennessee employee walked near the steam plant by the Tennessee River when they stumbled upon a gruesome scene. The employee came across the location of a brutal attack marked by broken and crushed foliage and large amounts of blood. At first, the employee thought that they had discovered a mauled animal, and it was only when they saw pants and shoes that they realized they had actually discovered a human body. The body was covered in hundreds of wounds and beaten so badly that it was unrecognizable. The crime scene was massive, covering an area of about 100 by 60 feet. Police immediately suspected the girl by the steam plant was Colleen Slemmer, a teenager missing from a local job skills boarding school. Colleen had signed out of the school the night before with three other students, but had not returned. 
police were so convinced the body found belonged to the missing girl that Colleen's mother was contacted by mid-morning that day and asked if her daughter had any physical marks or features that would aid in making a positive identification. However, there was so much damage done to the body that a positive visual identification was completely impossible, and it would require dental records to provide the final confirmation that the body was indeed that of Colleen Slemmer. Colleen Slemmer was a 19-year-old woman who was originally from Orange Park, a small town in northern Florida. Photographs show a bright smile and a mop of curly, dirty blonde hair. However, as it is sometimes the case with murder victims, very little is documented about Colleen's life before she met her killer. She was in Knoxville, Tennessee to attend Job Corps. Job Corps is a boarding school of sorts for young adults from low-income backgrounds. Job Corps takes in these young adults in their late teens and early 20s who have dropped out of school without graduating and aims to provide them with training so they can gain employment in a variety of sectors. Their website shows a range of industries that Job Corps graduates could work in, such as construction, nursing, and IT. Some of the students have behavioral issues, which leads them to seek out a program that will accept them and give them a second chance. Job Corps requires their students to live in dormitories, and many, like Colleen, were far away from home in search of a fresh start. One of Colleen's dorm mates was Krista Pike. 18-year-old Krista was also very far from her home of Durham, North Carolina, after being kicked out by both of her parents due to her violent and explosive behavior. Krista did not have a great start in life. She was born premature and was raised by her paternal grandmother, who was an abusive alcoholic. After her grandmother's death, a 12-year-old Krista started to live with her biological parents. She was shuffled between both homes until she was eventually kicked out in her teenage years. Krista was accepted into the Job Corps program in Knoxville to study computer programming, a skill that would hopefully land her a good job and change the path that her life was on. Krista and Colleen knew each other, but they were not friends. It is said that Colleen had an interest in Krista's boyfriend, to Daryl Ship, and that Krista was very jealous of this attraction. Krista met 17-year-old to Daryl Ship at Job Corps. The pair became an item drawn to each other by their mutual interest in devil worship and the occult. While it was well known that Krista and Tadaryl were an item, it was reported that Colleen made advances towards Tadaryl, which Krista took great offense to. The women had verbal altercations on more than one occasion and generally just did not get along. Those who knew Colleen later denied that she was in any way interested in Tadaryl. However, Krista insists to this day that there was an attraction. On Thursday, January 12th, Krista approached Colleen with a surprising offer. She said that she wanted to make peace. Krista suggested that they, along with Tadaryl and another friend, Shadola, meet that evening to smoke marijuana together. While surprised by the offer, Colleen accepted and arranged to meet Krista later that night. The dormitory register showed that all four students signed out the night of the 12th around 8 p.m. 
the four made their way along an unlit path to an isolated area of the University of Tennessee campus near an old steam plant. Colleen quickly realized that the offer of peace was just a tactic to get her away from the dorm. Once at the steam plant, the three began attacking Colleen. They had brought a box cutter and a small meat cleaver with them. Colleen was ordered to remove her top and her bra, which the attackers believed would stop her from leaving. They cut, slashed, and stabbed Colleen, and kicked and punched her as well. Tadaryl carved a pentagram on her chest with the box cutter. When the attack started, Colleen threatened to tell Job Corps about the assault, which would result in Krista's expulsion from the program. This only increased Krista's rage, and she escalated her attack. During the attack, Colleen was alive and begging for her life, saying she would leave Job Corps if they would just stop and let her go, but the brutal attack continued. She tried to get up and run several times, but she was stopped and held down so the attack could continue. The more Colleen tried to beg for her life, the more frenzied the attack became, with Krista kicking Colleen in the face and then tying a rag around her mouth. Krista would later recount kicking Colleen in the face to get her to stop talking, since she felt it was harder to hurt someone who was talking to her and pleading for her life. Colleen's neck was slashed multiple times as the attackers tried to cut her throat. She had skull fractures from being kicked in the head, and the fractures were so severe that a piece of her skull was knocked loose and taken by Krista as a trophy. None of these injuries caused Colleen to become unconscious. She was awake and aware for the entire attack. The fatal blow came from a piece of asphalt that Krista repeatedly used to hit Colleen over the head with. When they were sure that Colleen was dead, they dragged her body to a more densely wooded area and dumped her on a pile of debris. Then they cleaned themselves up in a nearby muddy puddle of water. The violent attack lasted more than 30 minutes, with Colleen receiving hundreds of cuts all over her body. The coroner later said that they only cataloged the most severe 300 wounds, as cataloging all of the knife wounds would have taken days. They made their way back to the dorms and stopped at a Texaco station less than a mile from the crime scene. They stopped here so they could dump Colleen's ID and some of her personal items that they had taken off of her. These items were later collected by police and used as evidence. Three students signed back into Job Corps around 10.15 that night. According to a witness who was also a Job Corps student, Krista went straight to her room and started dancing around, excitedly bragging about killing Colleen. With a smile on her face, she went into detail about the attack and described cutting Colleen's throat and kicking her in the head. Krista then showed the student the piece of Colleen's skull as proof of the killing. Colleen's body was discovered the next morning on Friday the 13th by a University of Tennessee employee who was walking near the steam plant. Her body was so badly beaten that it was thought to be that of an animal until her shoes were spotted. 
Only then did the employee realize what they had come across. Police arrived and cordoned off the massive crime scene, finding blood and evidence across a huge debris field. Krista spent the 13th of January at Job Corps. Krista was carrying the bone fragment around in her coat pocket. She had it at breakfast and classes and in her meetings that day. She is reported to have shown the piece of Colleen's skull to multiple people that day. She was making no effort to keep the crime a secret between her, Shadala, and to Daryl. She openly told the other students about what had happened the night before. Another Job Corps resident named Stephanie Wilson said that Krista went into great detail about the murder, describing what Colleen's beaten body looked like surrounded by blood. Krista also showed her the skull fragment and the blood on her shoes as proof of the killing. None of the fellow Job Corps students reported Krista's confession to the police. This was not the kind of place where you would get very far by turning in other students or involving yourself in someone else's business. Around 4 p.m. on the 13th, a group of girls showed up at the crime scene and began asking the police officer on duty about what had happened there and why the area was cordoned off. One of these girls was later identified by that police officer as Krista Pike. In the officer's report, he said that Krista, who he also noted was wearing a pentagram necklace, was the only one asking questions that seemed amused by the situation. The other girls silently watched on as Krista shifted about and badgered the officer about the crime and the identity of the victim. The officer thought nothing of this gathering of young women and brushed it off as curious youth who had heard about what happened. However, when the officer learned that a pentagram had been carved onto Colleen, he recalled the necklace that Krista was wearing and reported the incident. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Krista, Tadaryl, and Shadola were taken to the police station from Job Corps on the 14th of January, just two days after the murder. All three of them were charged with the first-degree murder of Colleen Slemmer. Tadaryl was held at a juvenile facility with no bond while it was decided if he would be charged as an adult. Krista and Shadola were both held on $100,000 bonds. Krista was read her Miranda rights at the station, but waived them immediately. She was happy to talk to the police about the murder and was very forthcoming about the details. She gave a very in-depth statement that was recorded and all 46 pages worth were later transcribed. The police informed Krista that they would be searching her dorm room and she not only consented to the police search, but she accompanied them and pointed out the bloodstained pants that she was wearing the night that she attacked Colleen. Krista then led the police along the route that was taken the night of the murder, ending where Colleen's body was found. Krista's coat containing the skull fragment had been left in the office at Job Corps. It was handed to the police by a Job Corps employee and the fragment was found inside the pocket, just where Krista said it would be. In Krista's initial statement, which was used as evidence at her preliminary hearing, She said that she was jealous because Colleen was hitting on her boyfriend. She wanted the advances to stop, and she decided to show Colleen who was the boss. Krista also recounted how she felt baited by Colleen because Krista was only one incident away from being asked to leave Job Corps, and Colleen was using that to her advantage. She described verbal altercations that took place between her and Colleen, and she also said that she once woke up to Colleen standing over her with a box cutter in hand. Krista's statement said that she didn't intend to kill Colleen, she just wanted to rough her up a bit so she would stop talking to her boyfriend. Once she was beating Colleen, Krista said that voices told her to keep going and kill her so that she couldn't tell anyone about the attack. However, at Shadala's preliminary hearing, it was testified to that the murder was premeditated and that Krista had told her about the plan to kill Colleen prior to the attack. She stated that Krista's reason for wanting to kill Colleen was that she, quote, just felt mean that day. Krista's trial began in 1996 with the prosecution seeking the death penalty. At the trial, the extent of the torture that occurred was laid out for the jury. They were told that Colleen Slemmer was lured to a secluded spot by three people who were claiming they wanted a fresh start with their friendship. The jury heard how, at the hands of Krista Pike, Colleen suffered innumerable cuts. The coroner, who was cataloging the wounds, said that there were too many to effectively count. Deciding that it would take days just to catalog the wounds, the coroner decided that they would focus on the most severe wound in their report. The jury heard about the multiple skull fractures that were so severe that part of Colleen's skull dislodged and fell to the ground, and that her throat had been slashed over a dozen times. They heard how the attack had lasted over 30 minutes and how Colleen begged for her life and tried to escape multiple times. They also heard how Krista bashed Colleen's head in and dumped her body on a pile of debris, 
Then they heard about how Krista dumped Colleen's ID in a gas station trash can and how she gleefully bragged about the murder. No detail was spared. The jury heard it all. Due to the severe nature of her head injuries, Colleen's skull required a full reconstruction, as some skull fragments had come loose and became lodged in her brain. Her skull was used as evidence in court. During the trial, a witness for the prosecution showed how the bone fragment that Krista had shown off as a trophy fit perfectly into the gap in Colleen's skull. DNA evidence was also used to show another physical link between Krista and the crime. Blood taken from Krista's shoes and clothing was also DNA tested, and the blood on the clothing came back as a match to Colleen. The medical director of Vanderbilt University weighed in on the satanic elements of the case, namely the pentagram that had been carved into Colleen's chest. He described the satanic symbols as adolescent dabbling, not believing that there was any true satanic motivations behind the crime. It is interesting to note here that Crystal and Tadaryl were both wearing pentagram necklaces when they were initially questioned by the police, and Krista was wearing one when she revisited the crime scene with friends the day after the murder. Tadaryl also had an altar in his dorm room that he was instructed to dismantle by Job Corps staff. He did not get rid of it, and it was found by police during their search of the dorms. The defense tried to plant a seed of doubt about the murder being premeditated, hoping to avoid the death penalty. They argued that Krista, who had a very high IQ for someone who dropped out of school around the ninth grade, suffered from a very severe case of borderline personality disorder, as well as the effects of drug and inhalant addiction. These diagnoses were given as the reasons why Krista had poor impulse control and interpersonal relationships. The clinical psychologist for the defense said that losing control and acting on impulse was characteristic of borderline personality disorder and as such means that the murder was not premeditated. He also explained that the gleeful dancing after the murder was a way of releasing emotions that Krista had associated with the killing. When cross-examined, he was asked about the premeditation that goes along with bringing weapons to the scene of the crime, and he admitted that that was a premeditated action. In court statements, it is revealed that Krista stopped the attack on multiple occasions and watched Colleen as she bled on the ground. She even left to investigate a noise in the bushes at one point and then came back to resume the attack. According to the clinical psychologist testifying for the defense, when Krista went and investigated the noise, she would have had enough time to calm down and consider her actions. This pokes holes in the defense's theory that Krista lost control and was in a blind rage during the attack and that she wasn't fully in control of her actions. Krista was convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in 1996. She was found guilty after five days of testimony and two and a half hours of deliberation. During sentencing, no new evidence was entered. The prosecution had more than enough. DNA linked her to the crime scene. She made a confession 
And then she literally walked police through the scene and the events of that night. While the murder weapons were never found, there was more than enough evidence for a conviction without them. The defense, in a last-ditch attempt to portray Krista as a misunderstood girl, called her aunt and parents to testify about Krista's turbulent, abusive, and inconsistent upbringing. All family members agreed that Krista's upbringing was rough. However, when cross-examined, they testified that Krista was a habitual liar with troubling behavior. Krista's family members admitted that they were not comfortable having her around them or their families. Krista's mother also described her as being out of control since she was a child. Krista was sentenced to death by electric chair, making her the only woman on death row in Tennessee and the youngest woman to be sentenced to death after the death penalty was reinstated in the United States in 1976 a title she still holds at the time of this recording. She was also given 25 years for the conspiracy charge. After her sentencing, Krista was hysterically crying and calling out to her mother as she was led from the courtroom. Tadaryl's trial was held in July of 1996. Tadaryl was a minor at the time of the murder and was not eligible for the death penalty under Tennessee law. Federal law now states the death penalty cannot be sought for crimes committed by minors, but in 1996, it was legal on a state-by-state basis. Tadaryl was sentenced to life in prison for the murder. In March of 1997, he was given an additional charge for conspiracy to commit murder, and Tadaryl was found guilty on that charge as well and given an additional 25 years to be served consecutively. The judge described him as a dangerous man during his sentencing, and he won't be eligible for parole until he is 52 years old. Shadola decided to cooperate with police and became a witness for the prosecution. She pled guilty to being an accessory to the murder and was given six years probation. Krista's lawyers began appealing right away. They first argued that she should not have been convicted of first-degree murder. They argued that there was no evidence of premeditation or conspiracy, and therefore the first-degree murder charge should be lessened, and the conspiracy charge should be dropped. Other arguments include unfair jury selection due to media coverage and various reasons as to why the death penalty should not have been given in this case. The first round of appeals were all rejected, and the death penalty conviction was upheld. During the second round of appeals, Krista seemingly gave up fighting her conviction. She said she would accept her punishment, and it is said that she was begging for the judge to set an execution date. However, she later changed her mind and decided to proceed with the appeals. There were more appeals with the same results. In the later appeals, Krista's lawyers argued ineffective counsel in her original trial. It was decided that her original lawyers were not in violation of any rules, therefore they were not ineffective. Finally, her lawyers argued that her history of abuse and mental health issues were not given enough weight at her original trial, and that executing someone with a mental illness violates the Eighth Amendment. 
The Eighth Amendment states that punishments must not be cruel and unusual. This rejection all but exhausts her appeal avenues and her chance at overturning her death sentence. Krista's life in prison has not been without incident. In 2001, a fire was started by another inmate at the prison where Krista was being held. Krista, who was usually isolated in her cell, was placed in a cell with two other prisoners, Patricia Jones and Natasha Cornett, during the fire evacuation. Patricia Jones was imprisoned for the brutal stabbing and murder of Alberta Coker, an 84-year-old woman whom Patricia attacked and killed for her belongings. Patricia sold the jewelry that she had taken after the attack for $50 worth of cocaine. She is currently serving a life sentence plus 40 years for her crime. Like Krista, Natasha was imprisoned as a teenager and her crimes are also locally well-known. An 18-year-old Natasha was arrested and charged for her role in the murders of the Lily Lid family in 1997. She, along with a group of friends, were running away from home in Pikeville, Kentucky to start a new life in New Orleans, Louisiana. The group didn't get too far into their drive when they realized that their car was probably not going to last the rest of the drive. With no money to repair their car or purchase a new one, the group brainstormed how they would steal a car that could take them the rest of the way to New Orleans. While stopped at a rest stop in Greenville, Tennessee, Natasha and the group came across the Lilylid family who was on their way back from a religious convention. Vidar and Delphina and their two young children, Tabitha and Peter, had been traveling in their family van. Vidar and two-year-old Peter approached Natasha and her group and began discussing religious beliefs with them. Sensing an opportunity, the group decided that they would steal the Lily Lids van. Thinking they would eventually be arrested for the theft of the car, the group ordered the Lily Lids into the van at gunpoint and set off towards New Orleans. Vidar pleaded for his family to be left behind at the rest stop and offered his keys to his car and money, but they were all forced into the van. Delphina tried to calm her frightened children, but the group of friends, now turned kidnappers, grew agitated. The van pulled off the interstate to a secluded area, and it was there that the group lined the Lilylid family up and shot them one by one. Before leaving, the group shot them again in an attempt to make sure that they were all dead. After the murders, they decided it was best to drive to Mexico. They were eventually apprehended by Mexican police and turned over to authorities in Arizona. After being extradited to Tennessee, they were informed that two-year-old Peter was the sole survivor of the attack. Six-year-old Tabitha was shot in the head and immediately brain dead, but alive when the family was found. Vidar survived for up to 10 minutes with six gunshot wounds to various parts of his body. Horrifyingly, Delphina may have been conscious for up to 25 minutes after being shot eight times and run over by the van as they left the scene. Natasha is serving three life sentences, one for each of the murders. There were tensions between the three women, 
which reportedly were known to the guards. Regardless of these known issues, they were all placed in a cell together. After an argument between Patricia and Natasha started, Krista strangled Patricia with a shoelace that she kept with her. Patricia survived the attack and Krista was charged with attempted murder. During a phone call with her mother, Krista recounted the strangling to her mother and showed no remorse during the phone call. All inmate calls are recorded, and the recording was used as evidence in court. At the trial, Natasha came to Krista's defense, saying that Krista was her friend and just trying to protect her. Krista was found guilty in 2004. After her attempted murder conviction, there wasn't a lot of news coverage of Krista, save for occasional stories updating her appeals. Although she was not in the news, she was actively writing letters to multiple male prison pen pals in various parts of the country. The next time Krista made headlines was in 2012, when she managed to convince her longtime pen pal, Donald Kohut, to help her escape prison. Krista corresponded with the New Jersey-based personal trainer via letters for some time, and in 2011, Donald began to visit the Tennessee prison frequently. He would make the 850-mile trip to visit Krista as often as twice a month. Whether he drove the 10 hours or flew, it's a long way to go every couple of weeks. During one of these visits, Donald met guard Justin Heflin, Justin, who was willing to be bribed, agreed to assist with Krista's escape from prison for a price. Justin was given cash and gifts, presumably paid for by Donald since Krista had no assets. The attempt was foiled before it even really began, and both men were arrested for their roles in planning the escape. The guard was charged with accepting bribes as well as for his role in the escape plan. Donald Kohut quickly posted the $250,000 bail and acquired a lawyer to help extradite him back to New Jersey. Just six weeks after his arrest, Donald was taken into police custody again, and this time he stood accused of mortgage fraud. Later, he would be charged with identity theft and credit card fraud. These charges are unrelated to the escape attempt, but may give an idea as to where the bribe money may have come from. Donald served his sentence at the Northeast Correctional Complex in Johnson County, Tennessee, and is due to be released in June of 2019. At the time of this recording, Krista Pike is still on death row and awaiting an execution date. Very few people have been executed in Tennessee in recent years, and it is thought that her execution date may never come. Her request to appeal to the Sixth Circuit Court of the United States Court of Appeals was rejected, and that was her only path for continuing her appeal of her conviction. Krista remains the only woman on death row in the state of Tennessee. Tadaryl Ship continues to serve his prison sentence and will be eligible for parole in 2031. Shadola Peterson finished her six years of probation without incident and has kept a very low profile since the murder. Colleen Slemmer's mother, May, is still waiting to lay her daughter to rest. 
Due to the brutality of the crime, the state of Tennessee has quite literally returned Colleen to her mother in pieces over the years. Colleen's skull and the fragment that was taken by Krista are still being held in evidence and cannot be released to Colleen's mother until Krista's lawyers have exhausted all avenues of appeal. It is believed that this might not happen until the hours before Krista's execution, and there is no sign that an execution date is going to be set anytime soon. Until then, Colleen's mom is waiting until she can reunite all of her daughter's remains and say a proper goodbye. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on the episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. I also want to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research and writing for this episode. And again, I'll be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago in July. Let me know if you can make it because I would love to say hi to any misconduct listeners who will be there. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And I want to say thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters because you help make this show possible. If you have a second, then head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and to share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MisconductPod. And if you have a case that you would like to see covered, go ahead and drop me a line and send it over to MisconductPodcast at gmail.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.